Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. So, another terrific show ahead of us tonight, stuffed full of natural history. Let's say hello to Richard Collins, who's out in Malahide, and Aileen Ilana, who's in Terenure. She's made it back to Terenure because I know during Science Week, which took place a couple of weeks ago, you know, Science Week is a a week-long event in Ireland each November, celebrating science in our everyday lives. And then you were very busy indeed. How did Science Week go for you? Science Week went very well. In fact, it was nearly Science Fortnight because I was visiting schools and talking to them about science. So I was over in Galway and Ballygar, which is just on the border with Throscommon. Mm-hmm. And I was all around Cavan. I was in Cavan Town. I was in Turbot. I was in Virginia. I was in Valley James stuff. I was as good as Paddy Riley. <laughs> and in fact, I was talking about, oh, the science of how the world works and interacting with the pupils. It was great. So they were all, they were all full of interest in all of this and how the whole world worked. And Science Week is a great idea, actually, because, I mean, it focuses the minds of, of pupils on science. Now, obviously, science covers more than just botany and biology and how the world works and other experiments and things were taking place from other parts of science. But I had a great time anyway, going around and talking to oh. secondary school because it's secondary schools that works on this. And it was grand. Well, I, I bet you did. Enormously. But how do you bring science into the classroom, Aina? How I mean you, how do you bring science into the classroom? Well, I just arrive in and here I am <laughs> speaking science. What do you think? Well, I, don't, I don't carry the white coat and dead what, do you, what do you do? I'm asking. <laughs> What do I do? I, I, I walk around and talk to them. I ask them, how does the world work? I ask them questions. I say, you know, you pl- get an acorn. How much does an acorn weigh? 50 grams. You plant it in the ground and you come back in 10 years time and you have what? And they say an acorn tree and we have to establish that it's actually an oak tree. And the oak tree now weighs a ton. And where did the stuff in the tree come from? And they all make suggestions. It came from the soil. And if it came from the soil, wouldn't there be a big hole in the ground under the tree that a ton of stuff came out of? And someone says it came from the sun. But if a bit of the sun goes into every tree, well, it's going to have freckles on the sun, isn't it? And if it came from the rain, it's all wet. And eventually we established it came from the air. So you kind of build it up. You ask the kids, you know, you go from the known to the unknown. You get them to think somewhat differently. You get them to be curious. You get them to ask questions. You ask them questions that they won't to ask you oh I have no bother bringing science into the classroom at all it's getting me to shut up is the problem <laughs> Richard Ina I've been in front of classes of children and they tend to ask the most interesting and the most thought provoking of questions have you any particular question that really stumped you presented by a small child no, I mean, the, the questions they ask me, they annoy me. They ask me, what's your favourite animal? And I, I, you know, like asking you, what's your favourite child? Or are you famous? That's a great one. <laughs> and I say, well, if you have to ask me that, I can't be that famous, can I? So, no, I haven't. I haven't met any children asking me intriguing questions like, why is the sky blue or anything like that? But you obviously have by the sound of you. I love to be stumped by things. I remember many, many years ago, a young fellow saying to me, the world is composed of protons and electrons and neutrons, these particles. And he said a strange thing. Is every electron exactly the same as every other one? Because, he says, you never get two things in the world that are exactly the same. How does it come about that everything is composed of particles that are exactly the same as each other. Now, that I thought that was, at the time, a silly question, but the more I think about it, the more intelligent that question seems to be. And did he go on to become a wonderful scientist that this happened many years ago? Or did you ever hear of him again? No, you tend to be in front of anonymous classes of, 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 of children and, and you, don't, uh, you don't hear about them much. Well, I do anyway. You're, you're a much more sociable person. I was telling them all about Jamie Watt, but they'd never heard of Jamie Watt, any of them, in fact. And he was the fellow, of course, who was up in Scotland looking at the lid jumping up and down on the kettle and wondering, you know, why was the lid jumping up and down, what was pushing it up? And he so he was doing 
what I was saying scientists had to do. They had to notice things and they had to ask questions. Lots of people saw kettles boiling, but Jamie Watt decided steam could do work and he invented the steam engine and he was only 10 when he noticed this. So I'm trying to get them to take those infernal things out of their ears and these screams out of their hands and go out and look and observe and listen and hear and notice what's going on and ask questions. And then there'll be scientists, but I don't know whether all of these devices that kids are using that is dulling their senses or not. I, I, I have worries sometimes. I remember a lecturer in philosophy, Dennis Turner, who used to maintain that science was fundamentally rather boring, that really the artistic side was the interesting part of life. And he, and well, he to, would say that, wouldn't he, if he was a well, philosopher? Well, no, he's a philosopher. He was a philosopher. Yeah. He stood above all this and tried to reconcile everything. Now, I was reminded of this thought with this giant rocket that has been released. I remember questioning him about that. And he said, well, you know, he says the Apollo 11 was very interesting, but by the time you got to Apollo 12 or Apollo 15, it was a big yawn once you nobody was interested anymore he said because fundamentally science is a dull grey grey truth is now his painted toy said said Yates Um, do you have any sympathy with those kind of sentiments Anna? Of what science being boring? Well, that yes, that it is colourless. Um, uh, see, he wasn't a scientist saying this. I don't think that at all. I think I think science is wonderful. Imagine having a world with no science and that nobody knew what was going on and they weren't curious and they weren't trying to find out things. And I mean, if all of those Apollos went off in exactly the same way and did exactly the same thing, what a colossal waste of money sending them there. And they didn't. I mean, they were all to further knowledge. They were going to different places, doing different things. He was a philosopher he didn't know what was going on if they were called different names he might have thought there was something else I would have no time for that at all I'm afraid Richard Well do you remember our friend Kira Carroll who used to be working here in RT Fado Fado and her daughter asked a question of this panel many years ago on the programme do you remember what the question this was long before Science Week by the way do any of you remember what the question was? Look I can hardly remember yesterday okay. what was the question? Do sharks smile? That was the question she posed to the panel. Mm. Because when you see the movies Finding Nemo and all that kind of stuff, all the creatures in that have expressions on their face. And she was wondering, do sharks smile? And you've got to think about that very deeply to wonder, can they express themselves? No, they don't. Not at all. I mean, smiling is a human thing. There's sentiment <coughs> attached to it. And dogs, apparently. Didn't we do something on the on this programme some time ago saying, about yeah. the fact that dogs aren't interested in humans at all? They're only, they're only making whatever gives a reward to them. And if, you, if making some kind of a face gets you to get them something to eat, then they'll do it. But they're not smiling at you. They're just behaving in a way to get food. Well, I think the answer was that the part of the brain that's required to express feelings wasn't developed enough. I think something like that at the time. Well, I remember talking to some divers uh, about this problem of sharks and I, I was doing a bit of diving and I was slightly interested on whether or not a shark might attack. And they said, well, sharks display to you when they don't like what's going on. They have postural displays, the waving of fins and turning, like the way a bull goes, go into a field with the bull and he starts this lowering the head and moving it from side to side. He doesn't attack from zero he attacks after warning you off that's mm. the sort they say with a dog so in fact they do communicate they do talk to each other and talk to people like you who might intrude into their world they do communicate it's not that with the smile no but it might be with the fin wave but no such thing as a silly question as they say isn't that correct so Indeed. science week is a good thing no matter what you're asked anyway let's move on Now, we're all familiar with the popular Day in the Life of style documentaries, which give us a snapshot of a city, a hospital, airport, a meadow, jungle, canopy, etc. over a fixed period of time. Well, this one such project really caught our attention. Snapshot EU is a collaborative project which monitors animals across the whole of Europe through a coordinated and standardised camera trap effort. The study aims to sample sites in all countries and across all habitat types. P. 
PhD student Adam F. Smith was keen to put Ireland on the international camera trap map by getting involved. He is studying at the University of Freiburg in Germany and also works with UCD's Laboratory of Wildlife Ecology and Behaviour, where he set up 40 cameras in County Wicklow just a short few weeks ago. But what did the cameras see? Adam joins us now from the Bavarian National Forest Park, close to the Austrian border, where he is currently based. Hello, Adam. How are you today? Hello, Derek. Tell us more about the project, please. Well, we're running these uh, camera trap projects in in central County Wicklow. It's part of a wider European project to kind of take a snapshot of wildlife across Europe at the same time and using the same methodology. So we set up these camera traps or some people might know them as game cameras or trail cameras. We set them up in forests, um, on the trees to try and get animals as they walk past. And how lucky have you been? We've been quite lucky. Last year, we we set up the cameras for two months and we got about 10,000 photos from 20 locations. This year, we've expanded and we now have 40 locations and we've looked uh, at a little bit of a longer time span and we have about 100,000 photos coming up on the camera traps now. Wow, that's a lot. And what are the common species? We actually wrote a short uh, research paper on this on our work last year because the majority of detections, the majority of species that we got were Sika uh, deer or Sika red deer hybrids. So, I mean, anybody who's been to County Wicklow or lives in central County Wicklow will be able to tell you that there is a lot of deer there. Mm-hmm. But we wanted to test it by using the camera traps to see just how common they were. And yeah, as we expected, they made up uh, the majority of our detections. Actually, 92% of our captures were, were deer. And were they the same deer? No, not the same individuals. What we did when we put the, the camera traps is they're spread normally about one kilometre apart from each other. So the female deer at least don't tend to range that far. They have small home ranges and that means in general we don't get them on independent camera traps. So we actually get different deer at different locations. So apart from the seeker, what else did you find? We did get some other stuff and this year we've gotten even more. We have uh, red foxes, we have badgers, We have quite a few pine martens and red squirrels this year, which we're very excited about, as well as that, uh, some hares. And of course, people are everywhere. So sometimes we get people walking in the forest on camera traps and their dogs or their cats as well. Yes, indeed. And you you, um, wrote this up and you said it was amazing that the most common animal was an introduced species, which, of course, Mm -hmm. the Sika deer is introduced by Lord Powerscourt way back in the 1800s and indeed crossed by him with red deer giving us these hybrids. But I mean, if you put your traps in County Wicklow where the place is full of deer, what else do you expect? Surely for something to work really well, you should put put these camera traps in different different types of habitats, not all in, in, in woodland, because obviously all you're going to get then are woodland species. And as you say, you got other things like pine martens and squirrels, naturally enough. Would you get a better picture of Ireland's fauna if you you choose a variety of habitats rather than just the woodland by itself? Yeah, it's a great question because it tackles some of the the scientific principles behind uh, good study designs. Last year, uh, our 20 locations was really only a pilot and we wanted to see how good it would work in an area where we know there are a lot of animals. This year, we've expanded to more locations in Wicklow. Of course, there will be more deer But we also have a a second initiative, which is a citizen science initiative uh, called uh, MammalNet Ireland. And anybody can participate in that. And that means we get camera trap photos from all over the country. Uh, People can upload uh, those photos to to us and it will help us in in sort of looking at the distribution uh, and the, the different diversity of species across Ireland. So looking looking at what you have been doing then, it might be interesting to see, can you find some of these mystery things? Wild boar have apparently been reintroduced into Wicklow for hunting and there was talk of roe deer as well. I mean, if you have 40 traps all over Wicklow, you should be able to ascertain whether there are any boar or any, any roe deer to be had or to be found. You haven't found anything strange like that so far, have you? No, nothing strange like that. I'm, I mean, the, the most unusual thing we have is the wild goats, which are in, in, in Glendalough. But we did have uh, some some chats with some locals while we were setting up camera traps. People said, oh, there was a wild boar sighted here or 
you know, my friend told me he saw a wild boar on, on, on the road here. And of course, we didn't get anything on the camera traps. So that doesn't necessarily say absolutely no, but that they weren't detected uh, is a good indication that they're probably not there. Or if they are, they're very, very local to some uh, certain area. And they're not becoming widespread, they're becoming a nuisance because, I mean, introduced species like this can cause terrible problems altogether with um, invasive species, as it were. So are you getting any birds at all? I know there aren't very many birds out at night, but are you getting any owls or anything in that order? Well, the camera traps work uh, 24-7. It just depends on what activates the sensor. So anything moving in front of it should activate the sensor. We do get birds. We have have great tits, blue tits, robins. I think we also have uh, missile thrush, uh, blackbirds, wood pigeons and quite a few jays actually uh, also appear on the camera traps. But no birds of prey as of yet. And are the pictures black and white or are they in colour? So... During the daytime, they're in colour. The, the camera works like any normal camera. It just takes a photo. At nighttime, it uses a an infrared flash. That, so that gives you the kind of classic black and white camera trap trail camera photo. So at nighttime, the camera traps uh, photos are black and white. And during the day, they're in colour. And will the height of the camera on the tree affect what you get? I mean, I was looking at your list of things there and, um, you you know, I don't, you know, the things that are walking on the ground like foxes and badgers and things up trees as well all come out on that. So does the height of the camera influence in any particular place what you might be seeing? I mean, it it definitely can. I've done camera trap studies in, in many different places with different camera trap heights and you do miss the small stuff if you go too high on the tree, for example, But the good thing about this uh, uh, international project and international methodology is that everybody puts the camera traps at the same height and everybody puts the camera traps in the same orientation. So what we get um, across Europe should be the same. We should be able to get anything uh, small in front of the camera. Actually, this year we even got some mice uh, which are running around in front of the camera trap. So it's it's probably the best height uh, to, to use is around 50 centimetres. As low as that. And you've had no problem with vandalism or people taking them or any of that sort of thing. No, I think for the most part, people are quite understanding. They they see these devices in the forest and they, they sort of instinctively know that someone is either using it for uh, their own interest or scientific purposes. We do put uh, notes on the camera traps to say that it is for a scientific study. So people, when they see that, actually, I, I think are quite enthusiastic. We I mean, some people will just see the camera trap, they're picking mushrooms or whatever, and they just move on. And some people will give us a thumbs up. Uh, so it, it, it just depends. I think most people aren't really bothered by them. They're quite low uh, on the tree, as I said, so you don't even get people's faces most of the time. Adam, you are collecting an enormous quantity of data. Now, that must be pretty unanalyzable on the surface, at any rate, to analyze that and to turn it into inferences about what's happening out there must be a monumental statistical problem. Have you got mathematicians in on this, working out algorithms which will make sense of all that? It is definitely a lot of data from from one particular project. I mean, 100,000 photos is nothing to balk at. The good thing is I'm getting a a little bit of experience with this over the last few years during my PhD. Uh, I've done multiple camera trap uh, surveys uh, across Europe and we have tools for dealing with these uh, large data sets. Generally, the the kind of bottleneck is people going in and looking at the photos and saying, this is a deer, this is a fox, this is a deer, and putting that into our data table. Once that's ready, the kind of quantitative research uh, and the statistical analysis is fairly run of the mill. It's just uh, stuff that, that people have already done before that we already have experience with. So it's not unyieldy when it gets to the computational stage. Actually, the stage that is the bottleneck is classifying the photos. If you want to know more about lynx behaviour or bears in, in Germany in Bavarian National Park or something like that, are there guidelines for positioning cameras and for targeting these species to yield more focused data on them? Yes, absolutely. Um, what we do in Wicklow is something that's kind of in between a very random approach where a camera can be placed uh, in a random location and something that's targeted. 
So in, in Wicklow, we put the camera traps on uh, animal paths or trails so that we have a good chance to see basically any animal that's moving around in the forest. If you want to do something more focused, for example, uh, Eurasian lynx monitoring, we do that uh, here in the Bavarian Forest National Park. I do that also in, in uh, study sites in Belarus and, and Ukraine. And what we do is set up two camera traps on a road, on a, a trail or a ridgeline in the forest. And we, we set the two camera traps, one on either side. And what we can do then is look at the, the pattern of the fur on either side of the lynx and we can identify individual animals because lynx, their fur is kind of like a human fingerprint. You can tell individuals by their unique fur patterns and that's how we calculate the population density of lynx. It must be much more difficult to do something like lynx than to do seek a deer in Wicklow, I would have thought. Can I ask you about the results of that? It is said that there are 25,000 or so seek a deer in Ireland, and it is said that a 1,000 are killed every year in Wicklow legally and an unknown number illegally, yet the seeker is increasing in numbers. Is that a fair analysis? Uh, so I don't want to say too much about numbers because what we do actually isn't going for raw numbers. So density or animals per unit area is really like the gold standard in terms of wildlife research. What we've done with our survey is is sort of one step back from that, where we can look at what we call relative abundance or the number of animals per unit effort that we put into the camera traps. So we can't say anything about raw numbers it would be another kind of research design that we would need to do that. And it is possible, but it, it's, it's, it's quite intensive and it takes a lot of energy and effort from, from the research point of view. It is possible, but we, we haven't done that yet. It's probably something that we could move into in a few years or with, you know, extra funding or extra, extra help and support with, with a project like this. But for now, we're kind of looking at everything in a kind of more relative sense, a more snapshot of, of everything rather than focusing on calculating the density of deer, for example. What would you say is your most significant finding to date with these cameras? Personally, I am quite surprised that we have no grey squirrels on any of the camera traps. We have red squirrels on quite a few of them and pine martens on them as well. And to me, this kind of uh, is really interesting because it nearly corroborates some research done by Queen's University Belfast over the last few years, looking at the return of pine martens and how the pine martens and, and, and pine martin, red squirrel and grey squirrel kind of predator-prey triangle interacts. And it might be the case that the pine martens have already, you know, eaten all of the grey squirrels in County Wicklow that are, are certainly around our camera traps because we have got none and we have lots of red squirrels that are now seemingly thriving. Uh, which to me is great, and I think that's a really interesting result. So it confirms that the grey squirrel is now an urban dweller, whereas the red is a rural dweller. Is that right? To me, it says it says something along those lines. I mean, it, it would take you know surveys across Ireland to to kind of look at this uh, in more detail. But certainly, from from where we've put the camera traps, we've gotten just reds, and it is a rural area. Um, I wonder if you put camera traps in, in urban parks, you would get a different story. It'd be very interesting. What are you going to do with all this information now, with all of these photographs? The key thing to do now over the next few months is to uh, use our camera trap software, go through the photos, add the classifications, and then we're going to come up with some, some research questions that we want to tackle. For example, you know, looking again, the same sort of uh, situation as last year, what's the most commonly seen species? And then now that we have more camera traps, we can also do more in-depth analysis on things like, are they more common closer to, um, to, to settlements? Is there a difference between forest types? If, if broadleaf forests have more diversity than, than coniferous forests, for example. And we can also look at the kind of activity patterns of, of, of each species. So when animals are active during the day. So not just if they're there or not, but when are they active? Are they active just at dawn or dusk? Are they active during the day? Is there a difference between species? So that's some of the things that we're interested in looking at uh, over the next year or so. Well, it's a fantastic idea. Maybe you'll come back to us and let us know how you get on. Adam Smith, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.
looking forward to talking with Adam again in the future. Now, I want to say hello to farmer Sean Condon. There is widespread awareness of the environmental damage that can be caused by the wrong type of farming. We hear about it all the time. There isn't as much discussion of those that are doing a great job farming for nature about the positive stories. So reads the mission statement of Farming for Nature, a not-for-profit organisation who aim to inspire farmers to work closely with nature. Sean Condon of Templemore Dairy in County Limerick claimed this year's Farming for Nature's public award. Here's Sean reports from his farm where he outlines his work and some of the features of an organic dairy farm. Have a listen. Being organic, you get a lot of clover naturally in the sward. A lot of white clover, you can see it there. So that thrives. You also get a lot of bees and all that. Wildflowers around the place, on the hedges and around the pasture. So I suppose that's, that's all a big help, you know. Uh, we go around, we see the bees, but there's lots of insects and all that there as well, you know. So likes of young pheasants and all that would, um, you know, would be able to survive. You get a lot of berries in the hedges that aren't being cut back too severely and they're going to feed the, the birds for the winter. So it's all, I suppose, um, part, of the, part of a system, you know, and you try to farm within that, within that system, really. And farmer Sean Condon joins us now from his home. Hello, Sean. Tell me a little bit about your farm, please. Well, um, I'm an organic dairy farmer. I milk 50 cows uh, once a day and we sell probably half the milk from the farm or more uh, directly to the consumer as as raw milk bottled and the rest goes to the little milk company to make organic cheese for cheddar cheese for export so we'd be lightly stocked we try to farm for nature now, you say that external input are kept to a minimum on your farm. What exactly does external input mean? Well, uh, what it means exactly is, is anything that's brought into the farm. So basically, 98 or 9% of the food used by the cattle and the, the cows in the, over the year would come from the farm. So I'd use a little bit of imported meal, uh, cereals, during maybe December to late January, with a small number of animals I'd be milking during the winter for my bottled milk enterprise. So, and that comes from County Tipperary, so it's, it's local, local enough. And uh, so it's a very low input system. So, you know, practically, um, practically everything is from within the farm, all the feed. Being an organic farmer, there's no pesticides, artificial fertilizers, anything like that. And what about your hedgerows? Do you allow them to grow naturally? Do you cut them back? How often do you do it? Or do you not do it at all? Um, for the most part, I don't do it at all. Um, when a hedge goes to the stage where it's, it's gone really gappy and something needs to be done with it, it's cut back. Um, but, you know, 90, 95% of the hedges are, are left alone every year. And as one needs to be looked after, then it is. Now, if you can do that on your farm and it doesn't cause any difficulty, why aren't all farmers doing that? Well, I suppose the conventional thinking would be to take out a lot of hedges and traditionally that has been the case. Um, The hedges have been taken out, electric fences have been put in, uh, any hedges that have been left have been trimmed down to two or three metres high and a a metre wide and um, everything is kept lovely and tidy and... You know, I suppose less hedges, there's more room to grow grass, which means keeping extra stock. And, you know, I don't blame farmers for that because that's the advice that is being given, you know, and I suppose it's a kind of a result of of an EU cheap food policy um, where they try to get people to produce, produce, produce. This is what happens wildlife then. This is what happens nature. And just for the benefit of the listeners who do not live on farms, myself included, what is the benefit of allowing that hedgerow to grow naturally? Well, if the hedgerow is allowed to grow naturally, all the plants, the bushes, the seed-bearing plants will say, you know, you have hawthorns, a lot of hawthorns in Ireland, um, rose hips, brambles, you get the blackberries, all these slows from the blackthorn, they all develop full fruit. And so the hedges are laden down with fruit, 
So, you know, if the hedges are laden down with fruit, well, now you're going to get wildlife on the farm, birds and, and animals, because they've got food, because the hedges allowed to grow up, they've got a place to nest and to hide. Hedges are huge, they make a huge difference. And, you know, that's it, basically. If you give wildlife a chance to survive, they will, they will survive. And what about tree planting? I planted trees, maybe about an acre and a half of trees, I'd say, about 15 years ago. And, um, you know, mostly native species, oak and alder and ash and silver birch. And uh, they've developed nicely now. And, yeah, it's great. It's great. Trees obviously help in a big way, too. And I'm told that you don't top your fields. Can you explain that? Topping basically is where where key weeds are cut mechanically. I try to leave them for the most part uh, because what I find is if you leave the weeds and they flower, you get a lot of insects. You know, you'll get butterflies, you'll get bees, you'll get any, all the insects are there. If you let the, those weeds grow the insects are there you know it's part of the the natural cycle the, the insects are there for the the young the young birds when they're born so that they survive and i think it's a part of the natural cycle if you cut all the um, the weeds in an organic system or spray them maybe in um, a conventional system the cycle is broken there's there's nothing there for the the baby birds to survive in their early weeks so you're going to lose wildlife again. Well, Sean, it was lovely talking with you and congratulations once again. Thank you very much, Derek. Thank you. There goes Sean Condon, winner of this year's Farming for Nature Public Award. Now, the grey seal pup makes a sound not unlike that of a human baby. Have a listen. <coughs> And so perhaps it's not surprising that many well-meaning people can pick them up when they find them crying alone on our beaches at this time of year during peak pupping season. However, people interfering with seal pups can cause them to be orphaned prematurely, in which case they can have very little chance for survival. So says Melanie Crozy of Seal Rescue Ireland. Their 24-7 rescue hotline has been busier than ever with calls coming in from members of the public. Hello, Melanie. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Derek, for having me. Oh, we're delighted to have you. Richard. Hello, Melanie. The problem of people picking up seal pups. What's it like to be born a seal, a grey seal, Melanie? What would that experience be like? Well, I think that experience would be pretty tough, um, especially this year. Uh, So right about now, we're at peak pupping season for the grey seals around Ireland. So lots of mums are coming up on the beach. They're giving birth to these fluffy white baby seals. And you may have noticed we've had some pretty big storms over the last few weeks. So these pups are getting a really rough start to life. Um, So what they'll do is they'll spend a few weeks on the beach and their mother will nurse that pup for about three weeks. That pup will gain lots and lots of weight and in ideal conditions after a few weeks the mum just leaves it and then it has to fend for life on its own Um, but because of all these storms and because lots of factors like disturbance there's a lot of pups that are getting abandoned prematurely so at seal rescue ireland what we have to do is go rescue those seals bring them into care and rehabilitate them back to full health so they can be released back into the wild but the biggest thing we want to do is raise awareness on how to not cause seals to need to be rescued because so many members of the public, um, bless them, they call us all the time and they want to help with the seals. And a lot of times the best thing you can do is just give a safe distance. The mum is probably somewhere nearby. She's probably watching you and likely she'll come out of the beach um, and she will care for her pup. So, Melanie, you have to try to recreate the very early life of a seal pup in order to release it to the wild. Now, that seems to me a formidable task. Go back to the birth. Now, for three weeks, Mammy will feed it twice a day, four times a day, something like that, on very rich milk. Is that right? 
That's right. The the milk is 50% milk fat. So that means they just put on so much weight really, really quickly. And that's really important because um, in order to survive in really cold conditions and until they learn how to feed on their own, they're going to have to live off that blubber. So usually the pups that come into us, they're really emaciated. They're skinny. Um, you'll be able to see all their bones jutting out. Sometimes they have lots of injuries from getting tossed around in the surf. So in situations like that, we'll have to take that seal, we'll bring it into our care, uh, we'll do a physical assessment. So we'll basically weigh it, we'll figure out if it needs medication or wound care, and then we'll start tube feeding it. And that's just to give life-saving nutrients into those extremely hungry seals. Once they're stabilized, then we kind of put them through the rehab process. So just like you said, we try our best to recreate wild conditions. Of course, that's very, very hard. We have a very small center here in Courttown, County Wexford. And um, we're the only seal rescue center within the Republic of Ireland. So we're actually taking seals from all over the country. Uh, we're a very small charity and we rely a lot on volunteer support. So there's a lot of effort uh, 24 hours a day, really, especially this time of year um, where there's lots of seals coming in. In fact, we've got a seal arriving at the hospital as we speak. It's coming in from Cork um, and we've averaged about one intake a day since the beginning of October. Now, you can't, you have no supply of seal milk, this extraordinarily rich milk. Uh, can you simulate that? Can you create an artificial equivalent? And is it effective? Well, we do the best we possibly can. And we always say that a mother can do much better job of taking care of her pup than we ever could, which is why it's so important to prevent rescue situations by just respecting them from a safe distance, not approaching seals, stay at least 100 meters away, keep your dogs on a lead. And if you think that seal needs help, you can give us a call on our 24-hour rescue hotline. But once the seals arrive to us, basically it's a last-ditch effort. Um, a lot of those seals may not survive because their conditions are just too bad. We're getting lots of seals with respiratory in issues and all sorts of um, illnesses and a lot of injuries. So they do have the odds stacked against them. But once they're stabilized in the first few weeks, um, then their chance goes up and we have to actually put them through something called fish school. So we actually teach them how to eat fish on their own. But during those early stages, they're just little baby pups and they really just, they want their mom, they're all orphans. So when they're first in the intensive care unit. Um, we have something called uh, basically fake mums um, made out of upcycled wetsuits, and that simulates a mother in the wild. So a lot of times these little pups in the first few days will climb all over that wetsuit mum and they'll kind of suckle on it. And it's just a way to sort of calm them because they are wild animals. And when they're in care, it can be a very, very stressful, which is why we really want to keep them in the wild if at all possible. So we are working with county council nationwide, hoping to get educational signage up at beach accesses because um, most people are very interested and they'd love to be able to observe wild seals and, um, you know, watch their natural behaviors. But a lot of people just don't know what to do, which is completely fair and why it's so important to just raise awareness about respecting wildlife from a safe distance and protecting their habitat so that they can survive. In nature, the mother deserts her cub after how long? Three weeks or something like that? For gray seals, it's just about three weeks. It's very, very short, which is why they don't exactly have a strong maternal bond, which is why it's so easy to scare the mom away. If she perceives that it's too dangerous to get out and feed her pup, she will abandon it prematurely. And if they haven't put on enough weight at that stage, there's virtually no chance of their survival. Um, so in the next few months and weeks, we'll continue to get lots of calls from around the country of gray seal pups that just haven't thrived. They just haven't made it through those first few weeks. And in fact, they have it so rough, only about 50% of gray seal pups survive their first year. So the mortality rate is very, very high. So anything that we can do to protect as many as possible is really important. So do you take the seal pup, a very small seal pup, down to a suitable location and leave it there? Because it would be several days there in nature before it ventures into the sea and starts to learn to feed for itself. Do you do that? If you want to simulate what happens in the wild, that is what you would do. But do you? 
That's exactly what we do. So what we'll do is we'll um, return it to the coastline from which it was found. And in many cases, uh, these beaches, uh, these pups are rescued from beaches that are very dangerous. Lots of people, lots of dog walkers, um, even, you know, fish farms. And we wouldn't want to put it exactly on that location. So we've identified safe safe locations along these coastlines. And we'll basically take them out there in a cage and we'll open that cage and just let them go at their own pace. And every single time the instinct takes over and they go right out into the sea. And the only problem at this time of year is we've got seals ready to be released, but because of the incessant storms, it's very difficult to choose a good time because we don't want to release seal pups for the first time into the wild into a storm or ahead of a storm. And just what we've been seeing over the last few weeks, it's been really hard to find a calm time to release these seals. Um, But it really does just sort of as in a larger picture, it is an ecosystem, sort of a climate change issue. These storms are getting worse and more severe and more frequent every year. Um, so because of climate change, these seals are having a harder time surviving. So it really does echo to a larger environmental problem. And why seals are so important is because they are so cute and cuddly. They're charismatic. They remind you of your dog at home. And these seals really help people build an emotional connection between things like climate change and biodiversity loss and these adorable little seals that are really just trying to survive. Do you tag these seals before you let them off so that you can work out how successful the treatments have been? Yes, that's a great question. We do tag all of our seals and they all have a unique ID number on that tag. So if you do see a seal in the wild, we're always looking for that information because we love hearing about seals that we've released that have thrived. And we we uh, communicate with a lot of the other seal rescue centers around the UK and Europe. And a lot of times they can give us news about some of our seals and we can do the same because these seals, they really travel. So we do share a population with other parts of the world. And between Ireland and the UK, we're actually home to a third of the gray seal population in the world. So it's globally significant. And these animals are currently protected under both Irish and EU law, but that wasn't always the case. And in back before the 1970s, their numbers declined so much, they almost went extinct here. There were less than 500 individuals. So, you know, we have seen a population increase in the last few decades, but it's important to put that into context and that's up from near zero. So this is a conservation success story, but because of all the environmental threats these animals are facing, um, it is their, their future is unsure, uncertain. So this is why we do the work that we do and we really just need as many people as possible to support this work um, because you know we want to preserve these animals for future generations. They're iconic to Irish heritage. Um, So we really just want to do our part to ensure that that happens and that the entire marine ecosystem is protected. Melanie, I wanted to ask you about how they get found in the first instance. I would have thought that there are certain beaches that the grey seal mothers come ashore to give birth on, not just any beach willy-nilly that they were going past, that there were actually colonies of seals altogether, that they gave birth to the pup on the beach. Mother went back out to feed, but the pups were left behind on those beaches. So why would you suddenly encounter a seal on the beach by itself when presumably they're, they're born in, in a colony of seals. What, what happens between one and the other that they get isolated on beaches that are not seal colonies? That's an excellent question. And again, it draws back to the storms. So as you say, many of these seals do return to the same beaches. Um, So a lot of times it's islands like the Blasket Islands or Ackle Island. These are places where they're a little bit more protected from human disturbance. So they do cluster in those areas. Now, keep in mind that there's huge areas of the Irish coastline that are completely inhospitable to seals. Um, For instance, here in Court Town, we rarely see seals because of coastal erosion, um, things like uh, water pollution and just lots of coastal development. Now, we used to have a big sandy beach here and that's all gone because of, you know, 
basically the effects of climate change. So they've lost habitat. Um, so when they do cluster up on these uh, these isolated areas, um, you know, they might be safe at first, but then the next storm washes up and these these pups get washed out off the, away from the rookeries. So they get separated from their mothers and then they can wash up in areas really far from where they were birthed. Um, in fact, a few years ago, we found a seal pup in Arklow and it had spray paint on its back and we thought that was very strange but then we did a little bit of research and it turns out that this seal had been born in Wales and it was just two weeks old and what they do to do population assessments and monitor the success of seal pups is they spray paint them with different colors so you know it washes off but it's really important for research so we actually identified that this two-week-old pup had washed all the way over from Wales to Arklow so these these storms that just hit incessantly during pupping season, it really does cause a lot of disadvantage to these seals. But surely then, if a, if a seal pup is washed away off the rookery and out to sea and comes from Wales to Ireland, how is the mother ever going to know where it went? The mother knows this beach she gave the birth to, she goes back in to feed the pup and there it is gone because it's been washed away in the storm. I mean, it's hit or miss if the mother ever finds it again. So surely people interfering, as you say, are helping when they find a single pup on the beach. I mean, the quicker they act, the better, in a sense, rather than wondering, will the mother come and feed it? How can the mother possibly know where it is if it was washed away from its birth beach? Exactly. And many times they won't find it, which is why it's so important to report seals that you think need help. But I think what the most important message is, is to just pause and sort of assess the situation. You know, a lot of people want to help, but what they end up doing is inadvertently harming the seal. Uh, we've gotten reports of people dragging seals into the sea, um, that people pouring water on their faces. You know, they're, they're mammals, so they breathe oxygen like us. So that's not something that we would advise people to do. Um, Unfortunately, people do try to feed it. They try to take selfies with it. We've had reports of people just picking up the seals off the beach, wrapping them in a blanket and putting them in their car. And then they give us a call when the seal is already in their bathtub. So these are the kind of behaviors that we're really trying to discourage people to do. We know that they want to help and we welcome that. The best way to do that is to contact Seal Rescue Ireland and you can always join our rescue network. We're looking for volunteers nationwide and we'll train you how to monitor a seal pup, how to safely lift and transport, and then we'll add you to our rescue network. And we're desperate in need for uh, volunteers in the Northwest, especially Mayo, Donegal, Sligo area, and also even in the Midlands. Even if you're landlocked, um, you can help with transport. And the quicker that we get those seals to our care, quicker they can be stabilized and the better chances of their survival, exactly like you said. Oh, it's fascinating listening to you, I have to say. Melanie, if you don't mind me asking you, where are you from? I'm from Virginia. Uh, I've been living here for about six years and I've not picked up an Irish accent yet, unfortunately. <laughs> you don't have the grey seal where you are, do you, in Virginia? No, we don't. I had to travel to Ireland for mm. them. <laughs> Melanie, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Not at all. It was a pleasure to speak with you, Melanie. Niall Hatch has just popped into studio. Niall, where have you been all the programme? Where have you been? I, I've been it's been a busy day for me, Derek, because today marks the launch of the Irish Garden Bird Survey, uh, one of Absolutely. Bird of biggest events of the year. And it's going to be running for the next 13 weeks. A very exciting time. But just before we get on to talk about that, now you lived in the States for a while. You've been in Virginia. I was just yes. chatting to Melanie there. They've got the harbour seal, if I'm not mistaken, off the coast of Virginia, the North Atlantic there. And we have the harbour and the grey as we were speaking about there. Did you ever see them, that part of the world? I, I Not in Virginia. I haven't seen seals in Virginia. I have seen them elsewhere. I've seen them off the coast of Maine, for example, mm. and I think in New Jersey as well. I've seen them there as well. So there are quite a bit few of them along the coast. And then in California, I've seen the sea lions they have there. So oh, yeah. related to. They're nice. Yeah, what's the name of that harbour? Pier 36 or something like that, isn't it? I can't it? remember the number, but the one in San Francisco, yeah. There's a particular pier if you go to San Francisco and there's a whole colony of seals yeah. that come up and just rest there. Anyway, Noel, you're talking about the Irish Garden Bird Survey. Birdwatch Ireland's most popular citizen science survey with around 2,000 gardens taking part each year. That's interesting you say 2,000 gardens, not 2,000 people. Well, I, I often say household because it's really a whole family affair. We find that the whole family gets stuck into it. And actually we saw a marked increase over the course of COVID as well. Mm -hmm. More people at home getting to grips with the birds in their garden, finding comfort and solace and entertainment in them as well. And then realising that maybe they should give something back. So by doing the garden bird survey over the course of the winter months, uh, actually the data we gather from so many 
people doing it. It's invaluable in helping us to track population trends. And we've been doing this for over 30 years now. So that's quite oh a data goodness. set building up over the decades. And it allows you to then watch for trends, species going up and down, changing their distribution, changing the timing they're coming to the gardens. It's really interesting stuff. Well, I was actually going to ask you just to go through the basics. Why do we actually count birds in the garden in the first place? Well, a lot of people would think an organisation like Birdwatch Ireland that we'd be most concerned about the really rare birds that you want to keep track yeah. of their populations. And of course, we do want to do that. And that's very important. But you can actually tell a lot more about the health of the environment by tracking the common species, the abundant ones, and especially the ones that come into people's gardens that people recognise that they see day in, day out, because those trends are more likely to be spotted. So you may see a bird continue to be very common, but over the time of you doing the survey, you can see it may go down by several percent or up by several percent. And if that's matched over several years, you can spot definite trends there that otherwise, if you're just casually observing these birds, you just think, oh, you know, blackbirds are common. They always have been. Goldfinches are always common. Not necessarily. Um, and the numbers do fluctuate. So the survey really helps us to get a grip on that. So tell people what's involved. So the survey, it might sound a little complicated, but please don't be put off. It's actually child's play, quite literally, once you get involved with it. It runs for 13 weeks, starting from today, uh, so up until the end of February. And each week we ask people to note down the different species of birds they see coming into their garden each week. But not just the, the different species, the highest total that they see of any, at any one time of each species. Uh, and then you submit the highest count for that week. So it might sound a little complicated, but I'll give you an example to show what, what's involved. Do, yes. So let's say you have blue tits coming into your garden. Which I do. Yes, a lot of people do. And they're, in, they're always in the top three in, in and our actually, at this time of year, they're flocking. They are. They do, because so the, you get the blue tits with the grey tits and the cold tits and they're all together. They are. And they if you get a little frosty morning, they look gorgeous on the trees. They do. from tree to tree. They do. And, and actually, what we found through ringing studies is that you have probably more coming in and out of your garden than you would think. Mm. So it's actually impossible to count the numbers coming into your garden. So we want to see them both at one time. So let's say you look out your window on the first day of the week. So today, Monday, you were looking out earlier today and you saw maybe two blue tits together on your feeder. Let's say you look out tomorrow morning and you see three of them together coming back and forth. You know, there's three individual birds. Let's say Wednesday, you look out, there's only one there. And then let's say for some reason you don't see any more for the rest of the week. Well, the highest that you had in the whole week was three together there on the Tuesday morning. So three is what you write in the box for that uh, for that week. You can do it on a paper form or you can uh, submit it online to our, to our website as well. Uh, and so then, and then each week then it's a clean slate, you start again from scratch the following Monday. And you do that for each species that you see. One of the mistakes that people sometimes make is they, they uh, do it cumulatively. So we see ludicrous things like people saying they had like 462 robins in their garden or something. Um, it's not a survey of how many times you look out the window. It's a, it's a survey of the most number of birds you saw at any one time of each species. And we also have a few questions about the kind of food that you're feeding the birds, the size of your garden, relevant, relative to a tennis court, the sort of size that we use, um, what sort of vegetation you have, those kind of things. And we've also added a thing in the last few years we're trying to track any diseases of birds in the garden and uh, there's been a disease called trichomoniasis that's mm. hitting green finches particularly badly and we've seen yes. that species actually going down and down year on year for the last 10 years because of that disease uh, sometimes people as well say to us well I, I haven't got very many birds in my garden or I've got no birds in my garden there's no point in me taking part in the survey don't forget that's data the absence of birds is also really important for us to track so please don't let that put you off the absence of evidence as Richard would say is not evidence of absence it will exactly and the fact of it is that that's really vital data and of course you do have birds in your garden everybody has something going in yeah. it's really any bird that is actively using your garden so we don't count speech let's say you have um, some ducks like a mallard flying, flying over, over yeah yeah, quack, uh, yeah. Quack. Exactly. So Quiet. they're not using your garden, they're just getting from A to B. But you might, let's say, have a bird of prey, like uh, a buzzard or a kestrel, briefly flying over your garden, hovering, looking down. They, in a sense, are using your garden because they're scanning it for prey. So you would count those. Uh, gulls as well, maybe flying over, circling over your garden, looking down, and they may be looking for food. So they, in a sense, are using your garden as well. But in most cases, it's it's very clear cut. The bird will be on the grass, it'll be in a bush in your garden, it'll be sitting on your fence. Okay. Um, and you might find yourself in a situation where you see something nice in your neighbour's garden, you're just willing it to cross that boundary into your own garden so you can count it. Well, I mentioned it at the end of last week's programme and we had the information on our website. Is it too late to take part if they haven't already filled in the forms or downloaded the forms or whatever the case may be? Oh, no, by no means. It's just started today, so it's still got 13 weeks. Now, we like people to do it uh, as much from as they today. can. From today. Yeah. So you can do it as, as much or as little as you like, but the more weeks you do, the better the data is for us. Okay. And gardens that do it in successive years are even more valuable to us. We get more data to compare. Okay, so go on the website immediately, rte ie forward slash Mooney. You get all the details you need there and start if you haven't done it. Obviously, it's too late now, tonight, I mean, but you can do it in the morning and you can take part in this for the next 13 weeks. Niall, thank you very much indeed. Cheers, That's sir. pretty much all we have time for. My thanks to Niall Hatch, to Aidan Elana, Richard Collins and Terry Flanagan. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland and our researcher 
is John Bellarelli. Until next time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney.